You're listening to another film podcast where three friends watch a movie and discuss and debate it. Get ready for some hot takes, some non sequiturs, and a lot of banter. And as always, there will be spoilers. Roll pop. My name is Colin, and I recently watched uh, this little TV show called Starstruck. I don't think any of you have heard of it. Um, it's this really little, uh, you know, rom-com. It's very cute. It's a BBC show. Um, it stars this this comedian, Rose something or other. I don't know. It's, it was really charming, and I thought that you guys should watch it, because I don't think either of you have, have even heard of it before. So oh. I just wanted to make sure that I shouted it out. Interesting. I'll take note. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll consider it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like it? Yeah, it was really good. I mean, I only watched the first season so far, mm. but I'm excited okay. to watch the subsequent seasons. It was quite charming. And also it hilarious. It is. I would agree. Uh, my name is Tierney, and I recently first heard about the movie and then watched the movie No Hard Feelings, and it was surprisingly entertaining. Mm. <laughs> I haven't watched like, it when I heard about it, I mean, literally right before I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> Good advertising <laughs> campaign for that one, I guess. <laughs> Um, and my name is Matt, and I recently watched Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, uh, his new movie this year, getting a lot of Oscar buzz. Um, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I think I have to, like, sit with it, but I don't think I'm quite as hot a- on it as everybody else in my life seems to be. But I did think it was good. Uh, I just don't know if I like it more than other Yorgos movies. Um, but... The cool thing is, uh, while in Chicago, I got to see it with our guest star for this episode, uh, my brother, Val Fox. Uh, Val, say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. I'm Val. Uh, Actually, I recently saw No Hard Feelings as well. Oh, hey. And I was nervous to watch it because I think the movie's bad luck. On my way to go see this in the theater is when I got in my biking accident and broke my collarbone. Oh, no. So... I watched it and I was just like, I'm not riding my bike today. I'm not doing anything except for staying in my home so I don't kill myself. Smart. But yes, I did watch it. I also thought it was surprisingly very entertaining. Like, I like didn't know the, what to expect, but I, I thought the guy, I feel like he did a really good job of carrying that movie. And not that Jennifer Lawrence didn't, but like, you need someone <laughs> who can like play along. And uh, just for Val and not you guys. Uh, I died laughing at the Vermouth line. I thought it was the funniest thing. He's like, I'll just have the a which sip one? Of, he goes, I'll just have a sip of this Vermouth. <laughs> <laughs> when he's uh, trying to figure out what to drink. Whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really good. I thought the uh, just the the beach fight scene where she's fully new yeah. just. <laughs> terrorizing people was so funny too like just ridiculous and i loved it like f- true dedication to that film mm-hmm. oh, I, um well oh, go ahead no you you go i was now. just gonna say I, it's been on my list for a while and i 
had very low expectations for it, but I was like, yeah, I'll catch it. You know, I'll check it out now that it's on Netflix and now I'm, ex- I'm actually excited to watch it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. Just don't ride your bike. Just yeah, don't no, ride no, your no, bike. No, <laughs> yeah. Don't risk it. Um, but, uh, you know, another thing that Val and I watched, uh, was this next installment in our unconventional trilogies series. Uh, the second, Planet of the Apes movie from the, uh, as they referred to it, the, uh, what is it? What, what did I say last week? Not a reboot and not a reimagining. prequel. A reimagining. The reimagining of the Planet of the Apes series. Uh, also, we consider it like the Caesar trilogy. Uh, and it was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, so Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uh, was released in 2014, directed by Matt Reeves. Your boy. Uh, best known as the director of the best Batman movie we've ever had uh, <laughs> and stars Andy Serkis again uh, King Andy Serkis mm-hmm. Toby Kebbell Gary Oldman Jason Clark and Carrie who? Russell among others uh, what who are you asking about you said Gary who Gary Oldman Gary Old Guy <laughs> yes actual Gary name Old is Guy Gary Old Guy <laughs> Gary Old Gee um I think it was and, it, it was actually just Commissioner Jim Gordon. Like I don't think it was Gary Old Guy. I think it was just <laughs> just Commissioner Jim yeah. Gordon stumbled somehow <laughs> from Gotham to San Francisco. <laughs> in a, yeah, in a similar leadership role. He's got like a very similar haircut. Yeah, very similar facial Wait, hair. <laughs> yeah, does he have a mustache in this, or is he clean shaven? I can't remember. Well, he has like a beard, but I feel, feel like the mustache is a little more prominent. I see. I see. Um, I thought he was Doctor Smith's. You know. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Ancestor, <laughs> Lost in Space. 1997? 96? Anyway, uh, really a great quick, movie that Val and I also watched a lot. While we're talking about Gary Olguy and other uh, <laughs> things he's been in, I saw, uh-huh. a t- I saw a TikTok video of a Prada show, and I think it was like vil- super villains or something, and so it's like Willem Dafoe, Gary Olguy, Adrian Brody, Tim Roth, and like one Ooh. or two other people, and Gary Olkai is marching like he is like in the Red Army. Yeah, yeah. And Willem, have you it, seen it? Yeah, I saw I've it. Seen it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know the vibe of that show until I saw Gary Oldman walking, and I was like, okay, this looks a little too purposely like intense to just be his like catwalk walk. Yeah, but then Willem Dafoe is laughing. <laughs> Sweet, sweet Willem Dafoe. <laughs> That's like a maniacal laugh, though. You know, it's like a okay, villainous guess, laugh. Yeah, That's what he's okay. doing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Tangent um, over. Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is set 10 years after the events of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, and the fragile peace between apes and humans is threatened as mistrust and betrayal threaten to plunge both tribes into a war for dominance over Earth. Really, dominance over the Bay San Area. Yeah. yeah, the Bay Area, <laughs> the Greater Bay Area. That's about all the. Breath I feel like it's not even the... the Greater Bay Area. It's like Muir Woods and one mm-hmm. part of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, a pocket near City Hall. It's really interesting because this time I I thought about it greater than I've ever thought about it before. But I was like, if everybody in the world is dead and really like the only things that are alive and like thriving are apes, it's just these apes though, because no other ape was affected by anything. So it's oh. just these group of apes that are intelligent now and that's it so like yeah, once humans become they're nothing. reproducing like mad they are yeah, yeah. They'll, like, they'll, more, they'll, like they'll rabbit apes yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
but it is a good point. I think like, yeah, Val bringing that up, I was like, oh yeah, I guess like no other nation is dealing with like pockets of smart apes because it was just a virus, which, you know, maybe the, maybe the, like the, the uh, effects of the virus are unknown in those other parts as far as we know in this series, but maybe people coughing in the streets with whatever virus they contracted was enough if they were near apes to pass the virus to them, but then the virus helped them get smart. I mean, but we don't know. Let's, it, let's it, not it does seem like it's just them. That it's a prominent plot point in the first one that somebody gets sneezed on, and, uh-huh. and that is enough. So, like, you know, if somebody just happens to be walking by a zoo and just sneezes, like, maybe that's good enough to get the apes in, I don't know, New York or whatever. That's true. I mean, the thing was from the first one, it was a, a they were making like the. Uh, airborne version of this virus. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's very possible that, yeah, I guess a zookeeper could have <laughs> sneezed in the uh, you know, San Diego Zoo. Yeah. And then it's not just Northern California, yeah, it's also we, we Southern California state. natives. The yeah, we got the whole state, yeah. I think we should stop talking because we're going to start giving them ideas and not get credit for it. You're right. You're right. Will, and I guess we'll see, you know, not to jump ahead of why this is an unconventional trilogy, but we will see what Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, uh, which has a trailer out and is coming out next year, uh, leads us to understand about the next 300 years uh, in this series, because that one takes place way after this series. Uh, and we might learn uh, that there are other smart apes out there, but we don't know that yet. Is as far as we know. Alive? No. Well, you're just going to have to watch War for the Planet of the Apes to get the answer to that question, too. But, uh, so but no, in 300 years. And ignore what I just said. <laughs> no. Thanks for just spoiling Spoilers. It. I'm just saying 300 years is a long time for any ape to be alive, even a smart one. But you're just going to have to see the end of the next movie to know what happens to Caesar, he dies. whether or not he finds immortality. <laughs> If, if he dies and you guys just spoiled it live on the pod, I'm going to give you so much shit next week. Well, we'll find out what happens next week, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, we haven't said if he's a god or anything like that yet. He could be a god ape. Ooh. Yeah, there we go. Like some real dune shit. <laughs> yeah. They do say in the first movie that apes have an, uh, a more uh, intense immune system than humans do. So that's true. Go. We don't know what this virus does to apes in that way. Um, all right. Movie. Yeah. Well, you gotta watch. Uh, let's roll into let's our this movie for now. Three things we're gonna go around, and, we're, and I'm just gonna remind our listener uh, what our categories are for our pros and cons uh, elements of film, uh, and those are dialogue, acting, visuals, music and sound, story and plot, symbolism, cultural significance and emotional connection. So that last one's a personal emotional connection. Um, so I'm gonna go last, but uh, you know, who wants to share their, their first three? Well, I can go. Uh, Do it, Colin. So for this one, uh, I mostly wanted to shout out acting, visuals, and music slash sound. Mm, and all our yasses, because this movie is a, a big old yas from your boy bless up um tea girl you got um i have uh stories where i have the most notes and then i have like two notes under dialogue visuals and emotional connection um 
all of them were two notes. So positive or negative? I, um, they're kind of Ooh. just thoughts I had. Uh, story okay. plot was like a, a story plot was like a a myth in that there's okay. Yasses and Nars, and then um, <clears throat> visuals I think was a Yas, and then. I don't know if I could make a conclusion on dialogue based on my notes and same with emotional I we'll, connection. <laughs> I guess we'll get there. We'll, uh, we'll talk through it to see where you land. <laughs> um, I guess I'll go before Val uh, just to you know lay the land out. Um, I uh, chose acting as a yas, story and plot as a yas, and the emotional connection as a yas. Um, yeah, acting so all three be. yases. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, I think I chose symbolism for rise, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I felt like the story and plot were a little more interesting in this one, uh, at least in terms of like what I took from it. So, um, so Val, you know, welcome to our pub, uh, and now share whichever of these three thing or whichever of these eight things you would like to chat about. Yeah, I mean, I have notes on all eight. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I have uh, the three I think that really stood out for me then um, would be acting um, with some specifics around certain parts of the acting. Um, and then symbolism for sure. Uh, there's lots of it in this movie, and I'm really into all the symbolism that these Planet of the Eight movies have really fostered and, and kind of cultivated. And then um, the last one I have is just emotional connection to this one, too. Um, really excited to talk about this movie because, for me, this movie is an all-around yas <laughs> with nar-nars. <laughs> yeah, negative amount of nars. Uh, yeah. I was just thinking it would be a real power move if your first appearance on our episode or on our pod, you were just like, I have lengthy notes on all eight topics and we are going to be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready to make some serious cuts later on. I don't know who's responsible, but yeah. Unroll, unfurling a scroll. Tierney's yeah. like, please no. <laughs> please, please no. Don't do this to me. <laughs> um, all right. Well, where do we want to start then? Uh, I feel like all of us have stuff to talk about the acting. I was say, do we want to just start with the acting? Seems like an Let's easy one to roll into. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's start. Um, so, I mean, maybe the easiest entry point is to continue the conversation that we started with Rise about Andy Serkis's uh, just monumental achievement in motion capture acting in this series. And I think it is kind of, like, compounded on in this one. I think, like, the first one is so much about seeing his moments of recognition or his, like, growth as, uh, uh, like, you know, going from an ape to basically a fully sentient leader of a tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is more about the character of Caesar specifically and allowing Andy Circus to really kind of expand on what he started in the first one in a lot of, like, really minor but important ways um, in his acting. So I guess that's one thought that I have about the acting. Yeah. Uh, I, but starting with Andy Serkis. I, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about it in Rise, and I think that it's, like, I completely agree with you. I think it's significantly better here somehow. Like, he, he leveled up, even though he was already, like, at the apex. He somehow found a different gear for this performance. Um, and I think the other thing that I really like about this one is that 
you know, obviously the first one is so much Caesar's story. Um, and not that this movie isn't Caesar's story, but there are other apes that are take more of a prominent role, right? Like they're um, like Toby Kebble comes in to play Koba, and I think uh, I like I don't dislike Toby Kebble, but I've always been kind of just like indifferent towards him. But I think that Koba is really like he gives a really strong mm-hmm. vocab performance in this movie as well, and I think that like all of the motion capture kind of across the board is really solid. Um, and I think I would imagine that just like having Andy Serkis on set and having like the, the literal goat of this technology, just like being there just, you know, rises, like everybody else has to rise to the occasion. Um, pun partially intended. Um, but the, (laughs) I think that like all of the motion capture acting is really, really something like that just like blows me away every time I watch this movie. But I think the other thing that I really appreciate about this movie, especially in comparison to rise of the planet of the apes is that, um, the the acting, the quality of acting on the human side is just much stronger as well. I think they like, they, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have James Franco here. I mean, mostly (laughs) he's, he like pops up sort of in probably archive footage. Like, I don't think that this was new footage that they shot for this movie. Um, but I think, you know, just like the people that they have, like the humans that they cast in this movie are just stronger actors than a lot of, uh, what we had in the first movie. Um, so I think that that kind of helps, across the board I mean, as well. Car- yeah, Carrie Russell's performance I was really into, even though she was, like, kind of a very minor character mm-hmm. overall and wasn't really, like, the focal human character in it all. I thought, like, she had great emotional range. Mm-hmm. Um, you could really tell that she connected with, like, losing her daughter and, you know, really kind of connecting with the emotional aspect of that character. Um, but, I mean, certainly, yeah, like, the whole cast, uh, I thought, was did a really s- solid job. And just going back to Andy Circus for a moment, just to touch on that, um, we had watched it actually with um, my parents, and my mom had never seen these movies before, oh. but she kept commenting on, like, oh, are those like Andy Circus's real eyes? Like, and like, you know, oh, like, you know, is that is that actually Andy Circus or is it CGI? And we had to keep keep like reinforcing to be like, well, yeah, he's wearing like one of those the suits basically, but it's all his, you know, eye movements and mm-hmm. his, you know, his uh, and his actual movement, body movement. And so she was, like, super impressed by it all, too. So I think it also says something to not just the work of the actors in doing this, but even the CGI people that mm-hmm. worked on this movie. Because sometimes CGI can be very much abandoned. Yeah. Or, like, you know, left to, like, you know, oh, here's the end of our budget, and that's what we're going to use for it. Like, yeah. You, they really did the work on this one to make it be something that doesn't feel fake, but does continue to really keep you in that. Um, so there's not as much suspension of disbelief. You feel like you're watching apes mm-hmm. you know doing human things so yeah Tierney, did you want to jump in yeah <laughs> no i don't i mean everything you guys have said is stuff that i would agree with with acting i think the the human characters are a lot better than the previous human characters but yeah i just would echo everything you guys have said yeah, yeah. i i think the human performances <laughs> are something to note uh in particular for like what they have to do like in the first one there's so much that's just exposition they are Mm -hmm. just exposition machines to move the plot forward and i think a lot of the performances are just like at the at the will of whatever they have to do like i think david oyello's uh performance is like so stilted because it's just like 
I like this. Now I don't like this. I'm back on board and I like it. And now I'm the villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like Franco is basically just like, I got to get my, my ape back. Uh, and like not really doing much more than that. Frida Pinto is there to be <laughs> Frida positive. Frida Pinto is also there. <laughs> and, yeah, to be like a positive element uh, in the life of both Caesar and James Franco. But like they're just there to help the other parts move enough for Caesar to have his storyline progress. Where in this case, like, the humans really do have an impact on the main plot of the story. And they're all scared and uh, desperate and have their own motivations. And even within, I think, like, and maybe that speaks to the story and plot, but we don't have to move there just yet. But, like, the fact that both sides, human and ape, have the same conflicts driving their choices and Mm -hmm. decisions and the war that ends up kind of erupting in this is, I think, part of what makes this a better movie than Rise, is that, like, we actually feel the, like, tragedy of these two sides not understanding the other and not giving the other the benefit of the doubt that would prevent an all-out war. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, like, Gary Oldman is billed first, even though he's not... (laughs) nearly the biggest character in the movie. Mm-hmm. But I think in a lesser movie, he would have been a much more clear-cut villain and a lot more of the problems would have resulted from him pushing for war or advocating for, like, faster actions than um, than what would service a peace between the two. But he's kind of level-headed for a lot of it. And even when war finally breaks out, you can tell he's pretty sad that like this is the way it has to go and pretty scared that like now they're going to actually have to fight instead of just enjoying this huge moment for their community um and even his like final decision not to skip right to the end but like even his choice at the end is really built on him being like it's either now or never like Mm -hmm. we're gonna lose this if we wait any longer we already gave you time and this is what happened um and like koba is kind of the main, uh, not kind of, he's the main antagonist of this movie, and even his motivations feel complicated and kind Mm of uh, woven from his history as a character and what he experienced with humans, and also just, like, the current moment of feeling like, again, it's now or never. Like, if, if we don't act now, we'll be killed, because I know what these humans are capable of, and there's no time to wait. And so that, the performances, I think, elevate so much in the kind of, like, real life-or-death decisions that everybody has to make throughout this film, um, whether it's pulling a trigger or, you know, raising a rebellion. Uh, it's, it's kind of everybody has something to do more than the first one, at least. Mm-hmm. Before we dive too much more into, like, story and plot, which is, I think, where you're going with that, yeah. um, going back to acting for a moment, too, it's just, like, the... Specific parts are the notes that I had on it, too, are around, like, the violence choreography, because I have a background in stage combat, so a lot of movies, I will watch, like, the fight scenes, and it will really detach me from it if it's very poorly choreographed, <laughs> and for me, the violence seemed very real and very, like, um, it, and again, this goes into acting, it's just, like, the actors actually felt like they were in danger, even though, obviously, they weren't, mm-hmm. but, like, they felt like, you know, every moment was something that either, again, war could break out, that tension was there, or, you know, if they're just meeting each other in the forest for the first time and pulling a gun on somebody, you know, like, it felt very much uh, connected with just, like, the the survival aspect for each of these, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, both 
apes and people. They were surviving. Everybody was just surviving and you felt that with it all. Um, and I thought that was just like really well done. And even like the fight between um, Caesar and Koba at the end, you know, even though most mm-hmm. of it's CGI, again, still felt really real. I love that they incorporated a lot of like moves that an intelligent ape would use. Like mm-hmm. when Caesar grabs like scaffolding, but like uses his hand to kick the pipe back into his side. Like, yeah, like it wasn't just like a fist fight. It was apes fighting in an intelligent way now that they have more access to that. So um, I thought that was really, really fun too. Yeah. I was looking it up like halfway through the movie. Um, and I was like, so I knew that obviously Andy Serkis was um, Caesar and I knew that Toby Kebbell was Koba. But I was like, Terry Notary, who's like, he was in The Square, like uh, the Ruben Oslin movie a few years ago, he, like as a human, but like playing an ape as like an art piece. I don't know if that movie was not for me. But any, I was like, <laughs> he's involved in this movie somehow. And I couldn't quite remember it. So I was looking it up and he plays Rocket. So like he's actually a mm-hmm. character in the movie. But in addition to that, he's, um, I can't remember specifically what he's credited as, but he's like part of the crew as like a motion coordinator. So he's like, he was like cool. on set as a character, but also being like, no, this is how apes move. And so he was like, so I think like to your point, I think a lot of, and not just in the, the fight choreography, but just like when the apes are moving around, even though it's a human doing it, they all, they, it looks like how I would imagine. Like when I've seen, you know, most of the time when I go to the zoos, apes are just kind of like chilling and living mm-hmm. their best lives. But like when they do start moving around, it, like all of the visuals of the ape movement in these movies um, feel very real. Um, and I think that that's another testament to the acting that goes into that and just making sure that like, we're not only are we getting like the emotional beats of playing these characters, right. But we're also getting like the physical beats of playing these characters, right. As well. I just want to throw this out there as like a talking point, but I don't want to like, you know, take over the whole conversation, but I love this movie. The, uh, the other part of it too, when you're talking about just like the, ca- the casual nature of an ape is how much of this movie is told, though, through ASL, mm-hmm. but through an mm-hmm. ape mm-hmm. performing ASL. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very casual version. It's not like, you know, with the specificity of a person doing yeah. ASL. It's just like, you know, they're doing these gestures and stuff like that and, like, the different um, motions then that ASL includes. But it feels, like, natural, organic. It feels like an ape learning to do ASL and then just talking, you know, casually with each other. And that's the majority, which is awesome that it's, that's the way a lot of the dialogue is even done. Mm-hmm. Not to, not to segue into dialogue, but like so much of the dialogue is that, which is really cool. Yeah. That's actually a great point too, because ASL is so tied to the uh, facial emotion that's tied to the sign that you're doing. And so you kind of can't do it without any sort of facial uh, expression. And so like the apes are not, as expressive as a human face might be recognizable to us, but there's still enough emotion that we do get the fullness of their signing, like you're saying, from the you know the minor little smirks or like eyebrow raises that come with like them trying to communicate with each other. Um, and yeah, that's such a great point too that like the acting includes ASL, so like the motion capture acting has to be part of that too. Like they had to learn that language. And the line that's towed between ape and evolved ape also makes it so that, like, not only do they learn what an ape moves like and an ape walks like and 
yeah, expresses themselves, but they have to do it in a way that also feels more than. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, maybe the, the clearest example where you kind of see that divide is, like, uh, Koba putting on the performance of, an, of a chimp that humans would be used to and, like, huffing and smiling and kind of, like, moving his arms around in this like kind circus of... Ape. Circus ape. Circus yeah. ape, yeah, in this kind of, like, performative way. <clears throat> and then immediately as he, like, moves away from them, his face transforms to that of, like, pissed off, mm-hmm. done with humans. Uh, and you're like, oh, man, like, it, there's such a stark divide that's so clear um, that it's, it, it is clearly Toby Kebbell, you know, manipulating what we are seeing through Koba. Um, that it is, yeah, like, moments like that are so impressive. And we get glimpses of that in Rise, but because he, Caesar really is the only, like, advanced ape like, in, like him, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we get way more of it in this, and it's so much more important to understanding, like, the dynamics among the apes um, than it is in the first one. Yeah, that I, like, I'd only seen, I think I've only seen this movie, this was my third time, I saw it once in theaters, and then I think I saw it again shortly after it came out on Blu-ray, like, I think I watched it at home, but I had forgotten about that sequence where he just like is acting goofy and then just like immediately turns it off and i was like oh fuck (laughs) it's so good and the camera like the way the camera catches it as he's kind of like walking off screen is just it's really really impressive yeah t-girl you have any notes on acting no i actually i didn't take any notes on acting i just thought it was good good She's like, I'm, I'm done here. <laughs> um, Next topic. I guess, yeah. yeah. Do you want to transition to dialogue for any of the notes you've got on that? Since that kind of does relate to acting. I mean, I had two notes on dialogue. One of them was home, family, future. Okay, Vin Diesel. <laughs> uh, oh my god. god. <laughs> and then the other one was, uh, I thought human work, human work, human work was good. Yeah, that was really, like, mm-hmm. effective, mm-hmm. like, emotional gut punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But those are my only two notes on dialogue. I yeah. think it's really um, impressive how, you know, even though these apes are, like, evolved, I, I love that they still mostly don't communicate verbally. And we like kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think that that's just like a really interesting choice, and that's part of why like the music sound was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Like I think the fact that this movie opens, and other than like the little prologue that kind of sets the like kind of refreshes where we left off after the first movie, there's mm-hmm. like 15 minutes where there's like no dialogue whatsoever, other than very very minimal sign language between a couple apes and so I was like it's just a really bold choice that I think is extremely effective that like even when they're I have a theory oh interesting as to why I just I was Uh, gonna say before you get to your theory I was just like even though they are communicating in a way that is more than just like how actual apes would communicate they're still not like fully communicating in like a human way and i think like especially if you think of some of the earlier planet of the apes films where they're just like actually having full-on dialogue conversations i think that this this feels way more realistic to me um that they're like human work is is like all you you just have to say those two words like you don't have to say like this is a result of human work and this is a result of you know like i think that like Mm -hmm. he gets the point across with very minimal 
word usage, which I think is really, um, it feels very realistic. But anyway, your theory, hit us with it. Uh, After our last conversation, I looked up um, on YouTube some of the stuff from filming because I was like, you guys were giving me a hard time that it was a lot different than Lord of the Rings. And I was like, how is this so much different than Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Turns out it's not that much different. Okay, we didn't say it was Um, much different. We said that this was an advancement (laughs) that kind of changed the direction of motion capture from this point on. But it was all from the same technology as Lord of the Rings. Obviously, Andy Serkis, for sure. Was it, though? I feel like Tierney's right, though. I don't think that was that much of an advancement from Lord of the Rings. The eyes were new. The Tracking the eyes the, and rigging the eyes But I also think that, like... This. I think the eyes were there before, because Gollum has eyes. But his eyes anyway, aren't... The whole, <laughs> Gollum has <laughs> eyes. Whoa. I mean, he barely has <laughs> But they, his blinks... His blinks and his eye shifts... That's, I'm pretty sure that's all Andy Circus still. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be the way that they captured it was slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But anyway, uh, in one of them it was Andy Circus talking, and it was like he was talking about how he got the voice of Caesar and how he was like, well, if these creatures aren't evolved to use a voice the way that we use a voice, it's going to be difficult for them to speak. Mm-hmm. And so my guess is... Mm. He told whoever is going was writing it and was like, "This needs to be signed because chimps." Or maybe it wasn't him, but chimps would not be speaking that much because it would require more effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that yeah, theory is dead on. That's yeah. my theory. Feels right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also interesting that like, yeah, I think we're start in this movie especially like Koba talks. Uh, other apes talk like we get more talking from everyone besides Caesar and Caesar we hear more from uh, throughout this but there is still like it's a slow progression of language through this group of apes um, and it's not yeah again like the original Planet of the Apes is just like straight up British accent <laughs> ape people talking in costumes and this one it's yeah they're evolving but even then it's like it's cool that Caesar is still bilingual like he's the one who's able to speak on behalf of apes and like that first scene where they get to the city and they're all assembled outside and he's like humans city here Mm -hmm. apes home out there don't come back like we won't like we don't want to fight you stay here we stay there if if i need to say it again you know that i can so like this should be enough of a warning to you um, but it really, like it has that he's it's the most that we've heard him speak and the kind of fullest sentences that we hear him speak um, until later and then he but there's that aspect of like uh, him being of two worlds that even they reference like you've seen the good side of humans that we really haven't like not a lot of us have experienced the kind of life you did and he does that's what makes him a good leader is he's able to recognize the good in people and the good in humans and the potential even if he doesn't trust them, and even if he relies more on apes and trusts apes more, he's able to speak their language, and he understands them uh, in a way that they also understand him. And so, like, as far as dialogue, I think it is such a uh, sharp use of ASL, of non-spoken body language, of, you know, English uh, as a language, and everything in between. It's like, it's such a movie about 
a breakdown of communication. Uh, and I love that, uh, that yeah, it's, it's seen in multiple places. And when he speaks is important and mm-hmm. what he says is important. I just want to piggyback on that too. I think what's really fascinating about the dialogue is that to your point too, Tierney, like everything is very concise when it comes to apes because they have to be considered of like, you know, they're going to use a limited language for what they have. Um, but then humans have like far more intricate dialogue with each other. Like the conversation between, um, uh, Gary Oldman and I don't know the other actor's name, but Jason Clark. The, Jason Clark, yeah. yeah. What is his character's name in this? Great question. I don't remember now. Yeah, but like that, that <laughs> Malcolm conversation Malcolm. is a lot. Yeah, Mac uh, has a lot more um, conversational tone to it, like negotiating around like when you know they're going to attack or not attack, and like this is the amount of time you have. But in both cases, in you know, in the very developed conversation that a human has versus the very limited conversation that an ape has. It still breaks down to, you know, Koba is going to do his own thing and cause havoc and wreak havoc, and Gary Oldman's character is still going to, you know, if it comes down to it, still attack. So, like, no matter how you cut it, you know, the dialogue itself then doesn't really prevent anything from happening. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, extra words for the sake of extra words, you know, on the Uh human side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, let's move on to story plot if we don't have any more specific dialogue stuff because I think we're starting to move that direction anyway. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have to like go beat for beat, but um, obviously, yeah, this one has much more of a story than the first one. The first one is really just like walking us through the origins of, mm-hmm. uh, of Caesar, uh, which are great. And I think like the Caesar parts of Rise are incredibly compelling. Um, but in this one, it is much more about... Uh, and I've, saw, I've seen other reviewers say this as well. It's like, it is much more about the challenges of a leader, of, of balancing the needs of your people versus, you know, the risk of the outside forces that they might face. Um, and so, like, the story, I think, never quite... The flaws of Caesar are never unbelievable, and never even that overt, I think, like, and that's what I think is so smart about the plotting, is that uh, he makes the right choice basically every step along the way, and the only thing that he doesn't do is kill Koba in order to prevent this uprising. And even that, we don't want, in the moment when he's, like, beating Koba, we don't want him to kill him. Uh, we just want Koba to stop ignoring the advice of the leader who's brought them to this point and has allowed their civilization to flourish. And it's that lack of trust that ends up being the downfall. Um, and so like the, the kind of like build up to this explosion uh, takes so long. And it, but it's like you know, the tension is there the whole time of like, are the humans going to fuck this up? Are the apes going to fuck this up? Uh, like what's going to happen to, break this trust and for it to get as far as it does where the dam is turned on power is given back to the san francisco community and they're about to celebrate both the health of cornelia uh which just shout out to judy greer who plays cornelia in this what really yeah Uh, queen judy greer i remember say goodbye to these michael uh (laughs) the best I remember they announced that she was going to be in this, and I got really excited. I mean, I knew it was mocap, but I got really excited. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, 
what? She does, like, why did you even make that announcement? Like, she does yeah. nothing in this movie. She's just sickly. That's she's super just, like, funny. She just she's lays in, there. Like, three yeah. scenes. The great little holds, crown. like a teeny little baby yeah. monkey. Yeah. She's doing great with it, though. Um, but, like, for, for us to get, for the midpoint of the movie, essentially, to be, like, everything's about to go right before it all goes wrong, basically permanently. Like, this is the end of any sort of cooperation between humans and apes. Uh, I, I, it's just, like, such a, like a dramatic, epic beginning of the history of this, like, tribe of apes. Um, and there's, like, and we'll, you know, we'll, I think we'll touch on this more when we get to symbolism, but, like, maybe it's just woven into the plot, but, like, the like biblical quality or like this kind of like epic narrative that this story starts and that war four continues and that we'll likely see continue in kingdom. Uh, it really elevates this to like, it, it's a, it's a huge story in a very specific small location. Um, but the implications are huge. But you saw like the, how it, um, it basically pays off the story though of Julius Caesar, because that's who mm-hmm. Caesar's named after. Mm-hmm. Good point. Who has then, at Tu Brute, has Coba betray him. Mm-hmm. And that reflection is, like, played out then, which is really nice because it pays off from, like, the first movie where you see that's Jonathan or John Lithgow's reason for naming him is mm-hmm. Caesar because he's, you know, mm-hmm. a philosopher and, you know, is going to move uh, civilization forward to now being cut in his prime then by his best friend and most trusted person, so. It's a great point. Man, I didn't even catch that. How stupid. It's okay. It's not your favorite movie. Well, yeah, it's well, one of mine, so. On a, on a similar note, speaking of Julius Caesar and Etu Brute, uh, what I noticed, and this is, so what I'll say about the story and plot, the, the Nars come mostly from the fact that there were huge elements that were, like, very predictable for me. Sure. Which was, like, a little bit disappointing. The, there were also parts that weren't, like when Koba kills Ash, that caught me by surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, That's mm-hmm. so fucked and those, up. I always forget about that. And every time it happens, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> but those are the moments that I like because I'm surprised <laughs> and that my expectations are not met. It's like, it's no fun when your expectations are met uh, continuously. And so, speaking of Julius Caesar, speaking of Et Tu Brute, this story is basically Hamlet. And uh, mm-hmm. it is essentially the Lion King yeah, as well. I was say. And so <laughs> I, I realized that pretty quickly, which I think might have also been why I was like, aww. <laughs> uh, but it was, I mean, there's variations and differences to it. But in terms of what you were talking about with the element of it being a big epic, is because it is one of, like, I think there's, they say every story can be traced back to, every story since Shakespeare can be traced back to Shakespeare. And I'm sure it can go further before that, but mm-hmm. to where there are, people are like, there's only like nine types of stories in the world. Um, and this mm-hmm. one is just mapped kind of well over uh, <laughs> Hamlet, except for the fact that he didn't die. Um, and then, uh, yeah, okay. The other stuff is like very specific stuff, so I don't have to mention those right now. But that was the big one that I was like, oh, interesting. But the main, I thought it was good. It was just those elements where I was like, like, I knew Koba was going to be the problem within sure. the first mm-hmm. three mm-hmm. minutes. And then I knew he was going to try and kill him and start, a, like, I, and not, like, 
immediately, but, like, I could see it, like, ten minutes before anything happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were still moments that did surprise me, but that's just me being cranky. <laughs> it was yeah. still, like, well-written. I, I do think yeah. you're right, though, about the, the elements that were predictable, I think, are predictable for that's what these, like, hero stories always revolve around, and I think it affords itself the opportunities to upset some of those expectations and then follows kind of the the standard, you know, hero falls, hero to rises be- kind of stuff. But, um, but no, I think th- that's also where I'm not like, this movie breaks the mold. Uh, it breaks the mold in a lot of other ways, but yeah, in those particular regards, it, it follows the expectations that we have for a movie or a story like this. <laughs> and to be fair, I think most people look at story and like to be comforted a little bit i don't think everybody's like looking to be surprised (laughs) so that might just be me thing um can i say the specific things or do we have other stuff we want to add Uh, go for it yeah go Go for it uh i did like in the beginning that they basically just showed us all the ways that apes are better than humans at society Mm -hmm. Uh Um, (laughs) i was like well done uh and then I wrote Koba is human, mm-hmm. so Koba represents the human version. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I mean, Caesar I wrote, says at the very end, right? Koba not ape. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and kills him yeah. in the same way that Koba kills uh, Jacobs. Jacobs in Rise. Oh yeah, that's he right. Pushes him off the edge. He just oh, lets yeah. him fall. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, a fall. Um, a literal fall. And then I wrote uh, Brave to drive across the Golden Gate Bridge after 11 years. Mm. <laughs> so there were a few things that I was like, uh, I get that we've built this whole post-pandemic society, but it's like, <laughs> there are a few things you might want to consider in terms of making it a little more realistic. Yeah, yeah the infrastructure. <laughs> Structural engineering aspects yeah, that say. decay after yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Of, of the Golden Gate specifically, yeah. where you have like gale winds coming in. <laughs> Right. Most of the year. <laughs> yeah. A long ass suspension bridge. Mm-hmm. Great point. Yeah. Again, not something most people are considering. And then I just wrote poor sweet Ash. Oh, poor sweet well. Ash. But that and that really is a right moment thing. though that changes I think everybody else's mind of like, I don't know about this Koba as a leader whole idea, because like this clearly isn't what we signed up for. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. And it's very much what dictators do, like authoritarian leaders that seize control. The first people that they start betraying are the people closest to them if they're not loyal enough. Mm-hmm. So he was a person like that. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a governance by fear. Which yeah. It, after that, it immediately does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, um, the only thing that I have on story plot for this one is I think similar to what you were talking about, Matt. Um, with the dialogue earlier where you were saying that like so much of the first movie is just like, at least from the human side is just like very, uh, like expository and just like, we're just like getting this point. We're just like moving the plot along. Um, and I feel like the first movie in general is just kind of like, yeah, we're just, we're just going to do a blockbuster. Like Fox had some IP and they wanted to Mm -hmm. make some, you know, and like, I I think I mentioned this on the pod, that's like kind of the best case scenario. I think like the rise of the planet of the apes, just that one movie specifically is kind of best case scenario for a studio that just has some IP and wants to make a, a summer blockbuster. Like it's 
pretty well made. It's not really trying to do anything more than just like entertain you. Um, and I, and that's okay. There, like the space for that movie, movies like that exist. But I think that this one is it, Matt Reeves is like, no, we're going to like, let's do something more than just, you know, a blockbuster IP. Like let's do something a little bit deeper. Um, and I think that that like, it, that's what like gravitate, I gravitate toward this one so much more because it's like very clear that they were trying to do something more than just like a run of the mill blockbuster. Um, uh-huh. And even though I don't think it fully works all the time, I would much rather have the swing than just like, yeah, we'll just give you like a serviceable entertainment that you can eat some popcorn and kind of check, you know, turn your brain off for a little bit and then move, move on with your life. Because like, I think there's a lot of stuff in this movie that sticks with me in a way that the first movie doesn't. I think the first movie, too, was actually made as a singular title mm-hmm. before they were really cleared for the rest of the productions mm-hmm. so i think that's why like it's a very self-contained story mm-hmm. and ending and then this one because now they're cleared obviously for this movie and then to make a trilogy that's why they could really make like a a connecting movie versus like its own standalone movie again yeah and that's probably why like you know to your point like with the serviceable part parts of it all they could be a little bit more you know non-connective um and, and just do something that's like, you know, bigger, or, like you're saying, a bigger swing type deal. So, yeah. And in that regard, too, I think it's good that they use the characters that we already <clears throat> know from the first one in new ways, specifically Koba, who we mm-hmm. meet in the first one, who we know is damaged, and who we know is like a little more violent than the other ones. And to have him be the one who's most mistrusting and ultimately kind of ruins the peace is like a great use of that character in the same way that Maurice is like this trusted advisor through through all three of these movies that like Maurice is this first kind of partner of Caesar in, at the shelter and then continues to be this like loyalist to Caesar even through the uprising uh, and Cornelia even like everybody is like expanded on in this one in a way that makes sense to their character from the first movie and that you know, does allude to like where this might be going in the third. Uh, but yeah, just like a great use of those already established elements. And even having Caesar's son be named Blue Eyes as a reference to Bright Eyes, Bright Eyes. his grandmother, uh, is like very sweet and very, and there's so mo- so much emotion in Blue Eyes that you can tell like, yeah, he's he's two generations of smart ape uh down the line and there's more kind of emotional uh reactions in his eyes and in his like facial reactions than some of the other apes uh but yeah i don't know do we should we move on to symbolism i don't yeah. symbolic things yeah. uh, is that tied with visuals yeah i think well, let's do visuals and, and symbolism together because i do think a lot of them are are the same well, um, I don't have a ton on visuals. That was one of my yasas, but I think it, for me it was yeah. mostly just like the visual effects was the, like the main thing I wanted to talk about. And I just like these, you know, especially this one is almost ten years old, and it just looks so much better than most of the shit that we get now. And it's just like really <laughs> yeah. impressive. Like, I, and I think you know, Val, I think you mentioned this earlier. It was like they made sure that they did the work for this, which, you know, when a, when a movie does the work, like, CGI is great, 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, so many, I feel like so many movies now either don't do the work or Marvel is forcing them to do the work on an unrealistic timeline. And so yeah. it, everything know, the just... The Flash had amazing CGI. So <laughs> The Flash oh, just boy. seemed like more believable than anything I've ever seen ever in my life. Windows 95, fast looking screensaver. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really like every time anytime the apes are on screen i'm just like yeah i i do like these don't look real but they look really damn close <laughs> it's, it's yeah. really impressive um, like real enough to lose yourself in it i think for sure really yeah cool. absolutely <clears throat> yeah. um and i also the other thing i just wanted like no shade to rupert wyatt but like matt reeves is just a much better director and so there's just a lot of like images like shots in this movie in, in a way that the first movie doesn't really have a lot of, like, notable shots. Like, there are a couple that are, like... Like, we talked about, like, the trees and, like, all the leaves falling down. Like, there are some in the first movie, but there's just so many in this one that are just, like, really powerful. Like, I, I remember that shot of, like, when Caesar looks down and sees Koba with the gun. Like, just, like, that visual mm-hmm. is just so striking. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, the... Yeah, there, like, I think it just looks so much better uh, than the first one does. Again, no shade ever yeah. by it, but, like, they definitely got... Like, Matt, Matt Reeves is definitely an improvement in that department. Yeah. <laughs> There's the a one take of Malcolm trying yeah, to escape the that I think is, is pretty really dope. good. Yeah. Um, and then the only other visual note I had is that an ape riding a horse will never not be hilarious. <laughs> it looks <laughs> like... This is a great movie. I enjoyed this movie. Oh, an ape riding a horse looks dumb. <laughs> I think the legs are too short. I was I was constantly yeah. looking like, wouldn't you slip right off? They're just bouncing on their their bone is all they're doing. I mean, isn't it and, funny though with humans riding horses too? I think it's always looked funny to me when humans ride horses. Yeah, like, probably. <laughs> but I just was like, and then you think about it, and you're like. In what other scenario does an animal ride another animal other uh-huh. than humans riding horses? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you see, like, a little thing on a, on a turtle, like True. a cat on yeah, a turtle. Yeah, but that's usually what they call a symbiotic relationship, which is, mm. like, it's helping. Like, there's, um, I think they're birds that sit on, like, rhinos that will clean them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, and those eels. sorts of things. Yeah. To where, like... We're the only species that I can think of that just like basically like submits forces submit another species mm-hmm. to our will. Uh-huh. Uh, and I feel like We're and this is I think maybe <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I think this is why it doesn't make sense is because I feel like the apes wouldn't do that. Koba would, but I don't think Caesar would. And so I was like, mm. why are they riding horses? Yeah, why to subjugate they're them. They're apes. Are you kidding me? If I could fucking hang on trees by my feet we wouldn't even need a car yeah, it is but- funny because our dad asked the same question when we were watching this movie he's like wait or my, maybe it was my mom he, she, they were like wait why are they riding horses and I was like yeah. I hadn't thought about that but I guess yeah why are they riding horses like they're probably faster they're in a forest <laughs> yeah but I mean the forest only goes so far right like well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm mostly with you. I think there's two things at play. One, like when they're in the forest, yeah, they have no need for horses. But if they're trying to get out of the forest and go into a more urban environment, I could see like a horse being a faster mode of transportation. I think the other thing is just like 
they rode horses in the original series, so I think right. they have to ride horses yeah. in this one. Even it's a reimagining, but there's certain things that you just got to do if you're making a Planet of the Apes movie. Yeah. <laughs> so I just googled how fast can an ape run because I know like bison can run 35 miles an hour and like an ape can run 25 miles an hour. So it's pretty good. There's. There's no need for horses. Granted, horses can run, like, 45, because I Googled that as well. But <laughs> if you're in, like, a... Like, you're not going to the edge of a forest and then needing to run 45 miles an hour. What I, I would say... just run 25 over to the dam. Maybe um, from a, uh, a tactical point, if they have to get into combat, you wouldn't want to be tired from a trek. So mm. you would leverage using a horse basically to get to an area where you might go into combat and then have reserve your energy for that but <laughs> the look that'd be the thing i could think of so. the, the side eye that tyranny just gave which yeah, I, know. I think is a pretty <laughs> reasonable not point that you just made tyranny's yeah. like no thank you <laughs> no i don't want apes on horses no thank you i no. mean they climbed the Golden Gate Bridge before a battle in the last movie. Sure. Yeah. Well, in, sure. in the midst of battle. But they also rode horses in that. Or at least Caesar did. Yeah. So I know, and it looked funny then. And then the more I saw it this time, I was like, this just, it's not even funny anymore. It just looks dumb. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought it was a great movie. I just yeah. couldn't get over the ape on a horse. Going into. <laughs> and to your point, Vale, I think humans on a horse also looks a bit silly. Yeah, I, I mean, it does. Unless it is uh, Arwen in Lord of the Rings, then it looks pretty cool. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. obviously. To go into. But to visual- reference. Sorry to tangent one more time. Oh my god! But to reference Lord of the Rings and things looking dumb on horses, that uh, CGI where Legolas goes one way oh. and then the other way and defies gravity don't looks get it. so dumb and it will never not be dumb. Yeah, I don't like that either. <laughs> I love Legolas. Like Colin loves like it. <laughs> it's yeah. so silly, but it makes me laugh. And I'm like, whatever, it. it's still a five star movie. I don't care. <laughs> it makes me think of Tenet, oh, where it definitely. just doesn't look like anything. Where yeah. like they tried to animate something that looked cool, and then when you're lo- watching it, you're like, but this, do- I don't know what this is though. Like, how is this a move that accomplishes a thing? It's just like, what is its purpose, right? Like, anytime you're doing a move, even in acting, like, from one part of a stage to another part of a stage, it has to have reason for it, and yeah. that just doesn't have any kind of reason. But He's just lighter than air. He is. Uh, one thing I always want to point on visuals and shots uh, that's one of my favorites is when uh, Koba is taking over that tank or that armored car, Oh. and he gets on top, and it's a wonder of... Like him, you know, assaulting the interior, but then you get to see the chaos that's happening around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thought that was kind of neat and also tied into a part of symbolism where Koba is really just completely in his own world about seeking revenge and doesn't matter about the chaos that's happening around him, mm-hmm. but it's all centered on him. And that's why that shot is centered on him as it spins around, which I thought was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that it happens. Yeah. Is there a one person he's trying to get revenge on? Or he's just trying to kill no, all the humans? Just kill, just kill humans is okay. the revenge, yeah. Because, yeah, it's just humans have done it to him. So he's like, well, I'll kill every human. It doesn't matter to me. Um, human but, yeah, getting, getting rid of the, the tank and starting to operate and, you know, firing the gun like that I thought was um, really an interesting perspective to have. Because that's the only shot that's like that mm-hmm. throughout the whole movie. And it is the only, I think, one that they have in that whole movie, too. So... Yeah, there is the one with Malcolm in the, like, when he's trying to get out of the city. Like, he's got the, um... Oh, like when the he runs into bag. Blue Eyes? Yeah. 
like right before yeah. he oh. runs into blue eyes. There's like yeah, so it's it's those two, but two yeah. It's yeah. everywhere he turns and starts to go. There's mm-hmm. like a I keep yeah. calling them monkeys. You better watch it. <laughs> yeah. They're, They're not coming first. <laughs> yeah, you're a speciesist. But no, as far as like a, a stationary camera that's still moving, mm-hmm. it is. I mean, it's it's a totally unique shot for this series, and also I think for mm-hmm. the series. I don't know if it's repeated in war, but like, uh, yeah. When you called that out when we were watching it, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this too. Um, and it really is just like nonstop chaos at every corner and every part of this arena right now. Uh, and, and yeah, and I think following that up too with when he's, uh, when Koba is like rooting with the gorilla that's on top of the car and then it just explodes and every ape that was around it is dead and they just cut back to Koba being like, oh, uh, okay. Oops. Yeah. yeah, oops. Uh, <laughs> all right, I guess I'll keep going. But like, the, like, dr- the drama of that to show, like, you're losing, bud. Like, this is not a complete victory. Like, you're losing everybody around you, and this is exactly what Caesar was trying to stop. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, we can roll right into visual or into symbolism with those two of, like, uh, we repeat the leaves being a sign that, like, mm-hmm. someone is above. When you, we see, like, above the car, the leaves just start falling. I was like, ooh, repeating that guy again. Um the Roman handshake was such a fucking cool moment. The first time you see that they've moved past the supplication gesture mm-hmm. of apes into the traditional Roman handshake. Where Caesar. The Caesar handshake where they're uh, <clears throat> gripping each other's forearms. I was like, what a cool, subtle way to communicate that they've evolved into a society now, into something more than just the traditional ape kind of communications or under, like relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to kind of rattle through a bunch of things. This is more of a visual than a symbol, but like Caesar's castle or, you know, his home being this kind of like higher elevation, like the logs get longer as it goes up. It's such a cool like home for him to have with Cornelia and his family. Uh, but it's like this castle, essentially. It's it's the, the sign that he's the leader among all of them. Um, uh, if... Rise of the Planet of the Apes is about animal testing or anti-animal testing. Uh, Dawn is kind of anti-gun where it's like Mm. guns are really the problem. Without guns, Koba wouldn't have suspected as much violence would be coming from the humans. They wouldn't feel as threatened. It is the one major difference between the apes and the humans as far as what defenses they have. Mm -hmm. And in the end... It is a gun that breaks the peace because the fact that Koba is able to shoot and blame the gun on a human is what allows the uprising to happen at all. So we shouldn't be pro-animal testing and we shouldn't be pro-gun. That's a lesson of these movies that I took away from them. Um, <laughs> there goes your conservative audience. I know, right? No, Sorry, everybody. We lost them all. <laughs> You've been listening this long. Get out of here. Um, Get out of here. We didn't watch uh, it <laughs> right, uh, and then I, and then yeah, the the fact that rise ends with a rise up the trees, and dawn does end with a dawn. Uh, it, it is a dawn when the movie finishes. So like, we'll see what war ends with. A war I, and Caesar it's dying because you guys ruined it for me. You don't know anything, T. Uh, uh, and then yeah, I, so I'll just mad. rattle off. 
I'll just rattle off some other like minor things that. Tierney, like. he becomes a godrilla. That's what he becomes. Mm, and it's beginning of the godrilla. I don't series. believe it. It's sick. I believe he does. Yeah. <laughs> Caesar is God. Um, uh, uh, so, some other some other things uh, that I just liked were uh, Black Hole. The, yeah, the, the graphic, graphic novel, novel gets a shout out in this. It's the the book that um, Cody Smith McPhee's character reads with Maurice. Uh, symbolically, it's interesting that they chose Black Hole because it is a graphic novel about a virus that spreads among teenagers in the 70s uh, and is a, uh, an allegory for sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, but in this case, it's just a virus. So it's another book about a virus, uh, which I thought was interesting. And then, uh, yeah, just some like other cool visuals or just impactful visuals. Gary Oldman uh, looking at pictures of his family on the iPad uh, and having that be kind of the thing that he wanted the power for uh, was very sweet and touching. And then he um, has a Matthew McConaughey interstellar moment. Yeah, just <laughs> choking on tears, yeah. looking at his family. So um, that actually was a gnar for me. Uh, <laughs> but it's I'm with you, Vale. But the reason why it's a gnar is because of the logistics of it all. It's not that they didn't have electricity or power because they had generators that they could use with gasoline. So it mm. means you could technically power an iPad at any point if you really wanted to see his kids. Yeah. Clearly, he didn't want to see his family because he just never made an effort to do this before. <laughs> wow. And then, like, finally, now that, like, you know, the, the hydroelectric dam is doing it, now he's like, oh, okay, now look at my kids. And that just seemed like you could have done this this whole time. Yeah. Like, okay. Fine. And Fair. He's, sort of, he's like a one beat note the whole time and then is like we'll make him 3d character by making him cry at an ipad to where i was like i see what you're doing yeah, yeah. it's not working for me you can't manipulate me this easily yeah. it's because i simply pay- cannot be manipulated yeah it's because they had to pay him the gary oldman quote and that's yeah. why they're just like let's get something out of this guy like he's gonna have to yeah. cry in this sucker like and i'm pretty sure gary was like i just want a new car and phoned it in yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gave uh, more in that Prada walk than he did <laughs> the iPad. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah, that's mostly all I've got. I thought the chain fight was dope. Just them swinging around on mm-hmm. chains at the end. I was yeah. like, cool. Yeah. Use this this setting for all of its capabilities. Um, and also just that Caesar is the cool wisest 18 year old of all. He's only 18 years old, really. And it's crazy how wise and good he is. Um, uh, Yeah, those are all my notes. Well, that's the thing, actually, about the way he gets to be an intelligent, though, is and what um, James Franco's character realizes in the first movie is that the the medication is not only, like, good at repair, but it's also, like, an accelerant for learning. And so he will continuously get smarter and smarter, and that's why he ends up becoming a godrilla. But he Mm -hmm. becomes you know, super intelligent and he will always be super intelligent because of just his genetics. Like, that's just mm-hmm. who he's going to be, you know? So... That's a good point. So, yeah, he, he'll just continue to go on and on. But as a, as a person who loves the symbolism of these movies, too, having a tattoo, the only tattoo I have as of right now being um, uh, Caesar's window, which is home. Uh, which makes a he, really fun comeback in this movie. It does, yeah, and it's it's all over the place, which I think is great, you know, and it's used as not only, like, a symbol now for home, but, like, a symbol of 
kind of resistance mm-hmm. or or like of of what society is going to become is the idea and i thought that was a lot of fun i have it on my arm because it's just like yeah I, i'd rather have apes just take over the world uh humanity <laughs> fucking sucks so we're not doing a good apes, job apes so. can have it yeah. yeah apes can have it yeah, yeah. <laughs> to recall but, tyranny's review of rise of the planet of the apes humans do be dumb sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Not sometimes, all, all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. Humans yeah. do yeah. be Let dumb. The have it. <laughs> yeah. But that was a symbol that I love that they just kept using, uh, and that's like Caesar's symbol mm-hmm. um, overall. So, And the main reason, uh, I was like, we got to have Val on as a guest, because you really permanently established your fandom for this particular series, because that, <clears throat> that Caesar symbol is not, as far as I'm aware, at, in the original Planet of the Apes. It's really Caesar's Caesar's window in this. Yeah, it can't be in the original because this is Caesar's window from his original childhood home. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I watched Paddington 2 this week, and in the first shot where you see him up at his, his like, little attic, I thought to myself, Paddington's window. (laughs) (laughs) After our discussion last time. Yeah, or Tina kept going, what is Caesar's window? What is that? I was like, I didn't pay enough attention to, like, when he drew the window on the wall in mm-hmm. the prison, I was like, what is this? Because I wasn't paying attention to the window he was looking through. And it's it. how you identify that they get to James Franco's house in this one when they go there to give Yeah, like the camera pans. Yeah, I didn't see like, it and oh. I went, Caesar's window. <laughs> Good. I'm glad it's stuck this time. Um... Yeah, I mean, we don't have to spend a lot of time on emotional connection. I think we've pretty much established why these movies are emotional. Um, but I just love Caesar. It's hard not to love and root for Caesar at every step of his journey in mm-hmm. these movies. True Until he becomes a god Rilla and kills all existence. Um, but you'll have to wait for that next movie to find out how he does that. <laughs> um... Anything else? Any last? Little... The only other thing I wanted to say is uh, about halfway through the movie, I was like, this score is really good. And then I looked it up. I was like, Giacchino. <laughs> the, the new goat. So, yeah. The, uh, it, it, like, I was like, who did the score for the, for the first phone for Rise? And it's Patrick Doyle who did the score for... Uh, Brave. A lot of different things, but um, the Harry Potter 4 mm. um, and Brave, yes. Uh but I was just like, the only one I know. I was, yeah. Again, another just like serviceable. Like none of those scores are bad, but they're also not like, oh my god, this is so good. <laughs> uh, and then I was listening to this one, and I was like, oh yeah, this this is we've leveled up again. We got a we got we got the goat, the new goat, the post Williams goat. <laughs> he's the best there is right now. I mean, he's better than John Williams right now. Like John Williams' past few scores have been kind of like. I Come feel like on, John buddy. Williams might have peaked in like 2004. I think he also. I think, and I think that's okay. I think he's got enough iconic scores that will last the test of time. Mm-hmm. That not everything needs to be great, but it's also like the difference between Rogue One and Force Awakens is like stark. Like the the score is just better in Rogue One. Yeah, I think John Williams scores are always just meant to be these epic songs and every single time that he does it's an epic song or an epic composition and then for these 
like they're not meant to be epic they're a little bit more intimate they're mm-hmm. supposed to be quieter they're used at like exact moments too like because they could have put an underscore to when they were doing like you know the conversations in asl mm-hmm. but they didn't mm-hmm. they like left the score off because the score is supposed to be used to communicate an exact moment in these films as opposed to just being an underlying tone like john williams can compose mm-hmm. you know the longer things like that too but that's true but Jay Keenan is also responsible for bomb, 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 which is the dopest, coolest sting we've gotten in a few years. Uh, uh, that movie was terrible. So. What's, what's that in? The Batman. <sighs> oh. Awful. Uh, I actually, if I'm honest, didn't notice the score in this movie because I was like, it's so quiet. And then I just went about my life watching this movie. So. Well, keep an ear open for War 4. Savage. <laughs> Better. What do you mean? I don't know. There's just going to be more music in that one, probably. No, I meant why Colin called me savage. <laughs> when you were like, I didn't oh. pay attention to the music. I just kept living my life. <laughs> yeah, Damn. it is pretty savage. I feel like I feel like scores I either notice or I don't. Yeah. Wow. I think that's the point of this, though. Is it's not meant to be a prominent thing. It's only supposed to be communicating like certain parts, which that's probably why you were like, more paying attention to the other aspects of it all. Like with the John Williams mm-hmm. score, you notice the score because it's very it's in, in your, your face, face at yeah. a moment. Down your throat. Right. Yeah. Correct. Almost yeah. like the endings of a director. Oh my God. We can't do this again. <laughs> We're not going to flame Spielberg at the end of this episode. He's got nothing to do with this. He didn't ask for this shit. We can't do this again. Um, all right. I think We're we should move on, on to the Q&A. Q&A. Let's get through these quick. Um, anybody have any questions prepared already? I've got a couple. No. I don't have any of right. this one. Well, okay, I wasn't I'll... told to prepare anything until okay. five minutes before. It's all my fault, everybody. <laughs> but I've got questions. Um, so my first question would be, what would your ape name be? If you were an ape in the community, what would your ape name be? Oh, boy. You've got a lot of oh. variations. Something like Freckles. Freckles? <laughs> Freckles. <laughs> Freckles. Freckles. Okay. Come on. I heard Fuckles, and I was like, like a clown? <laughs> like Fuckles oh, the no. clown? Okay. Freckles. <laughs> Got it. Freckles is good. Freckles is a good one. Um, um, or Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That one I, have ver- I, have, I have very long limbs, and so I imagine if I were an ape, they'd be even longer. <laughs> Yeah, Stand, that stands to reason. Um, I guess mine would be like curly, because I would just have. I feel like I would have curly ape hair. Yeah, I mean that's it. That yeah, checks sure. out. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Or like like sugar, because I would eat a lot of sweets. I think as an ape. I would like constantly be hunting for like the sweetest sugar. little treats in the forest. Just your your house is just filled with banana peels. Yeah. I'd be like, where'd all the bananas go? And they'd be like, sugar. And I'd burp. And a whole banana would pop out. You would have raised that uh, gas station that was just in the middle of Mirror Woods, question mark. Oh, yeah. Absolutely eating all the Hershey's in there. Chomping down on some Twix. I have no idea what my ape name would be. I'm open to suggestions, but that's I'm not going to propose one for myself. I truly don't know either. Like, yeah. I mean, they could also be like cool names, like Cornelia is like not a, not like a descriptor. Sure. 
Um, I guess what I'm curious about too, and this just goes back to a story thing too, is like, how did Ash get his name? Because obviously, mm-hmm. like naming conventions for apes haven't really been the thing, and that's why like mm-hmm. Caesar refers to the little baby ape as just brother the whole time, and is never given a name. And I want to say has a name in war, but I'm and I think it's Cornelius, but I'm not exactly sure. Could I don't it remember, yeah. be after the tree or fire because they have fire? And that could be, yeah. yeah. I mean, and it kind of makes sense because, like, well, and but that's what I don't know. Like, if they know the dynamics of it all, because like rockets named Rocket, Ash is Rocket's son. Rockets would produce fire, right. which could create ash. But like, I don't know that they're that uh, like logical or putting those things together like that for for apes. That's a good point. But uh, but that's what I'm just like. I don't know what my name would be because Cornelia wasn't Cornelia's name given to her by another ape. That was a human name that was given to her, yeah. right? And same thing for Caesar, for any other ape, that's what they get. If that little boy is named Cornelius, that is how Romans named their children. And I think that that's... I think it is. Yeah, Cornelius. I looked it up, yeah. yeah. Yep, it's Cornelius, yeah. A girl would be called Cornelia if her father was Cornelius. And then Uh the boys would all be Cornelius, and then their second name would be usually what they were called. Yep, so that makes sense then. But, I mean, I, I think that in this, then, because Ash, you're right, is probably just, like, a natural or a derivative from, like, the nature around them. So, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of burned wood yeah. that, per, that creates the fortress that they have. So, I guess, yeah, Ash could make sense. I have no idea what mine All would right. be, though. Yeah. We don't have to break our brains over it. But, but now, I, now I need to know. Well, think about it, and we'll talk in the we'll, next we'll episode. Back, I'll yeah. say what you Yeah, we'll start <laughs> ask, right. ask chat GPT. Great Good idea. All right, and then uh, if if any come to mind, but maybe I'll just gonna I'll pose this one. What are some other classic fucked it up for everyone characters like Koba in cinema that you can think of? Uh, for one, I can think maybe Paul Reiser in Aliens, mm-hmm. who's a real fucked it up for everyone mm-hmm. dumbass. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe think on this one too, and we'll circle. <laughs> I mean, go back to the Katie alien movies. Karen and Mean Girls. She does kind of fuck it up for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Alien Covenant, the... Uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, David? David or kind no. of fucks it up for everybody because he... I mean, in, in... Not in Covenant, but in... Prometheus. Right. In Prometheus. But in Covenant, like, the guy who plays... I, well, I can't... I'm blanking on his name now. Matthew... Is it Billy Crudup? Billy Crudup, thank you, yeah. Oh, he yeah. does fuck it up. He yeah. fucks it up because he's given command and then it's just like, well, let's just see what happens. Like, <laughs> he does fuck it up for everyone. You're right. Like, let's go down this foreign planet that we have nothing to do with, so, like... Damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. I guess. I mean, this is... Like, those are more antagonists rather than just, like, the one... I mean, like, in, in all uh, the zombie movies, there's always a fucked it up for everyone guy who's like, I don't like this plan. I think I'm going to do this other thing instead and then fucks it up for everyone versus, like, Anton Sugar who is hired to murder and who's, recollect the thing yeah. and does fuck but it he, up for everyone, but, like, yeah, has a mission. killing other people. And yeah. then I think eventually they tell him not to and he still keeps doing it. Okay, then that, yeah. Then then that's that fucking fuck up, up yeah. everyone, yeah. I've never um, seen that movie still. Oh, you gotta see it. Oh, Uncle Benny in The Mummy? Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, oh, a classic Perfect. fucked it up for everyone character. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think there's a similar character like that in Saving Private Ryan. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Yeah. I just feel like war movies, for the most part, have <laughs> one guy that's like, 
game over, man, which is actually from Aliens, yeah. but not the fucked up character. <laughs> oh, um, the guy who gets eaten on the toilet in Jurassic Park? Uh-huh. He does fuck it up for everyone because he, he's some... Well, I, and I guess also Wayne Knight's character fucks it up for everyone. Yeah. Uh, the biggest fuck it up character, though, of all time... Jar Jar Binks because he votes in Imperial Power yeah. to Palpatine. So therefore, is that what happens in that movie? Because I've seen that movie one time, and every time he started talking, <laughs> my brain just emptied. Exactly because I have he's a dope. No idea. You just got a, well, a Matt look plots. from Val. <laughs> like Val just disappointment. <laughs> Come on. I mean, I get it, I but have, at the same time. I gen- that's the look, okay. so. For the podcast I listeners like, out there. Yeah. He's, he's doing the look right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole time. Like, if, if you're trying to, if you're trying to, like, communicate a difficult political scheme that's happening, maybe put it in someone who can, like, talk in a way that's comprehensible. I vote for Just, emergency powers to the Supreme Chancellor. Yeah, yeah, that's the perfect recap for exactly what he says in instilling imperial powers to Palpatine. And again, I retained none of that. Where I started crossing It came in and mind. went right back out. You don't like an alien duck rabbit <laughs> relaying an important no. plot point? Here's the better question. Does anybody? I thought no, George no. R. Binks was like universally hated. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. He's the biggest fuck it up for every character because he's like a really easy scapegoat for that. And he becomes friends with Anakin, so he really fucks with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, those were, those were my questions. Great examples, everybody. Um, anybody. Anybody have any last thoughts? Any last questions? William H. Macy and Fargo. Ooh. Yeah, mm. that's a great one. It's a really yeah. good one. That's a really good Fargo one. Fargo always has the, the fuck it up characters, too. Like. In the show, yeah. yeah. The show and the, the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck it up it's like they need to be there in order for the plot to progress in those. So yeah, I actually feel like Coen Brothers movies yes. all have yeah. a fuck it up character. Because I was thinking the Big Lebowski, uh huh, uh, Burn After Reading, Art Thou, Burn After Reading, mm-hmm. A Single Man. Mm-hmm. Because Brad Pitt's the fuck it up character, I think, in Burn <laughs> After Reading, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well done, T. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? A single man, and you heard. No, a, right. you thought I was talking about a serious man. I because I wasn't even paying attention anymore. I was trying to think of other fucking up characters. Mm-hmm. Sure, a sure. likely story. <laughs> um, well, that well, was that was Dawn. Of. That was Dawn. Uh, thank you, Val. Thank for you, Val. being on this episode. Yay! Welcome. Thank you, Val. This is for including me. Thank First uh, guest star, but uh, you'll be back on for future episodes. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So glad you got to talk about one of your favorite movies, mm-hmm. uh, a movie that you have permanently inked onto your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next week, we'll be discussing the last of the Caesar trilogy, War 4. War of. War 4. War of. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> uh, and until then. But it's not, though, because he becomes Godzilla. Well, right. Yeah. He, he just, he wins. Um, mm-hmm. He does. King, yeah. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. I just know it. Well, no spoilers on this episode for that. We would never spoil. Just like Caesar, this podcast is... Well, <laughs> I'm finished! <laughs>